If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up uh, to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is where we're going to be, page 991. If you're using one of the blue Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, we are in part 2 of a series entitled Called by God, a study through the book of 1 Timothy. And quick question, how many of you enjoyed Pastor Parnell these last two weekends? Was that, was that great or what? Yeah. That was fantastic. He got us. He closed out our study in Ezra and started out First uh, Timothy, and now we're in part two this weekend. And just real quick on that note, I wanted to clarify something because we get lots of calls, emails, questions uh, about this, and I just wanted to, to clarify this for you kind of publicly, is uh, Parnell and I are actually not identical twins. So, so we get asked that a lot. Are you guys? No, no, we're not. Uh, in fact, we're not even blood relatives, if you can believe that. But uh, obviously, he's an amazing man, a tremendous teacher. So uh, it's certainly a gift to hear from him these last two weeks. So uh, uh, in the book of 1 Timothy, here, here, here's what's going on. Is, is It's written by a man named Paul to his protege, Timothy. And, and Paul and Timothy have a, have a have a very, very, very close relationship. At this point in their lives, they had served together in three different locations, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, and in Philippi. They've been traveling around the ancient world, telling people about Jesus, planting churches, and now, at the occasion of this writing, Timothy was in Ephesus. Up to this point, Timothy had also assisted Paul in the writing of six of the letters that we see in the New Testament. So that just sort of gives you a sense of the close of their relationship. Now, the occasion of the writing of 1 Timothy, or in other words, the reason why 1 Timothy is being written, is because Timothy was facing some significant leadership challenges at the church in Ephesus. And what's interesting is that there are a few places in the New Testament where Paul writes letters to churches who are experiencing challenges from the outside. So, for example, the letter to the church at Galatia, the book of Galatians, is a letter to a church that was facing a lot of pressure from the outside and needed some help dealing with that. Or the church in Corinth was dealing with very different pressure from the outside, but it was pressure nonetheless. And and Paul is writing the book of 1 Corinthians to a address some of that. What's interesting about the book of 1 Timothy is that in this case, the church in Ephesus is having an internal problem. The problem in Ephesus is coming from within. Bad leadership has begun to take root and, and take influence in the church in Ephesus, and Timothy needs help dealing with that. So as we look through our passage this morning, I want to do I want to do kind of two different things, and and they're going to be sort of interwoven throughout the message. It's not going to be kind of one and then the other. Number one, I want to talk about how do we recognize the difference between constructive and destructive Bible teaching, or how can we as Bible readers? What's the difference between constructive and destructive Bible reading? And you might be looking at me saying, "Wait a second, wait a second. You mean to tell me that you are going to give us a Bible teaching?" about how to recognize constructive and destructive Bible teaching? Yeah, I am. And at the end, you can decide which category it falls into. (laughs) I'm kind of kidding, but not really. Second thing I want to do is I want to talk about motives. I want to talk about motives. In fact, I've entitled the message, Motives Matter. Because part of the problem with the leaders in the church in Ephesus that we're going to see is they had a motivation problem. They were leading from flagrantly impure motives. And as a result, that was affecting the quality of their leadership. 
And I'll be the first to admit to you that motives are tricky. Motives are really tricky. It is easy for us to be dishonest with ourselves about what our motives are. Not just dishonest with others. It's easy to be dishonest about ourselves, with ourselves. It's easy to believe that perhaps we have one set of motives when in reality we're motivated by something else. Like my wife and I, we took a long car trip recently and we, we listened to this book called How to Raise an Adult. It's a parenting book, which I hope you realize if you're a parent, you're not raising kids, you're, you're raising adults. And so we listened to this book and it was written by a woman who used to be a freshman dean at Stanford. And it was unbelievable to me to listen to this book. It was, a different, the kind of, it was different than I thought it would be, but the book told story after story after story of parents who so desperately wanted their kids to gain admission into an elite college or university that they pushed their kids to the breaking point and beyond. And it was unbelievable and unbelievably tragic to read about and hear about the mental, emotional, even physiological and physical health challenges that some of these young people face as a result. And just to be clear, on my perspective on all of this, I played the school game in high school. I took all the AP classes. I remember almost having a nervous breakdown the third day of my junior year. I went to an elite public university. My brother went to an Ivy League school. We lived in a household that had high academic standards, but they were at least within reason. So I had lots of friends who experienced the, the pushing to the breaking point and beyond. It's not something I'm, I'm ignorant of. And you see this in youth sports as well, where you see parents who push their kids to the point where they don't even like the sport anymore. Why? What, what, is every single, what did every single parent in that book say? What, what do parents who drive their kids too hard in youth sports say? What do they say? I just want what is best for my kids. I just want what is best for my kids. And listen, I'll be the first to admit, I don't have hard data to back this up, but as I hear these stories, I can't help but wonder, really? Is this what's best? Is that, is that really what's going on? Or is it possible? I'm not saying you're lying to your kids. I'm saying you might be lying to yourself. Is it possible that there is something in you where you just need to have a kid who gets into the best college. You just need to be able, as you're sitting with the other moms, the other dads, yeah, my son, my daughter, she, she, he or she made the all-star team. We made the traveling team. This and that and all this. Is there something in you that that's the motivation? Because I suspect that it is. I suspect that it is. And it's not just parenting where we can be where we can be affected by impure motives. Impure motives can affect the way we run our business. It can affect the way that we act at work. It can affect, the, it can affect our marriage. It can affect our social relationships. Impure, dishonest, mixed motives can affect us in, in so many different areas, which is why it's so important for us to pay attention to what our real motivations are. But the good news is this. The good news is, is the, what, what is available to us in Christ, don't miss this, what is available to us in Christ is infinitely better than what we could ever hope to gain from our mixed motives. What is available to us in Christ is better than what we could ever hope to gain from our mixed motives. And if we can fully take hold of all that Jesus has done for us, if we can fully take hold of the identity that is available to us in Christ, it will purify our motives like nothing else can. Because it will give us a solid identity. It will give us a secure identity so we're not out looking for it somewhere 
else. The good news is, for all of us, I'm right there with you, who struggle with mixed motives, what is available to us in Christ is better. And this is so important because the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Healthy living requires healthy motives. Healthy living requires healthy motives. If you and I are going to live healthy lives, if you and I are going to live healthy lives, we have to let our hearts be purified by Jesus so we can live with healthy and pure motives. So, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We have nine verses to cover. We're starting in verse 3. It says this. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul doesn't waste any time. He just jumps right in and says, Timothy, I need you to stay in Ephesus to handle the fact that we've got people who are teaching different doctrine. There is false teaching going on in the church. And listen, I'll be the first to admit that doctrine is not exactly an exciting word. Nobody's like, doctrine, yay. Nobody's saying, hey, when can we get together on a weekend night and have another one of those doctrine parties? That sounds like a good time. (laughs) Nobody says that. But make no mistake about it, doctrine matters. Make no mistake about it, doctrine matters. Your personal doctrine matters. In fact, I would suggest to you, it is affecting your life, positively or negatively, more than you realize. And as Christ followers, we are people of doctrine. We are people who claim a particular set of beliefs as God's authoritative truth. And the most central doctrine of all doctrines is the gospel. God's free grace to us available in Jesus Christ. The gospel which teaches us that left to our own devices, we are sinners by nature and choice. Left to our own devices, we have fallen short of God's perfect standard, and there is nothing you can do, no amount of obedience, no amount of church attendance, nothing we can do to make up for that. And yet God, in His infinite mercy, rather than looking upon our brokenness with with condemnation we deserve, instead, He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And He lived the perfect life you and I could not live. He died the death that you and I deserved to die. And He rose from death so that we can live knowing that our greatest enemies, Satan, sin and death, no longer have power over us. It's the gospel, right? That we in our brokenness have been so loved by God that wholeness is available to us through Him. That's the gospel. It is the foundation of what we believe. And we need to be clear that if we move on from the gospel, we are no longer talking about Christianity. We might be talking about philosophy. We might be talking about religion. We are not talking about Christianity if we move on from the gospel. And we don't know what was being taught in Ephesus, but we know that it was something different. And here's the thing. Here's here's what we need to understand, especially if you've been a Christ follower for a long time. It's easy if you've been a Christ follower for a while to kind of, I don't think we consciously do this, but we subconsciously, we get to the point where we say, okay, I understand the gospel. What else is there? I understand the gospel. What else is there? And the truth is the gospel is not the basics. The gospel is not the basics that we understand the gospel, then we move on to other ideas. The gospel is everything. 
The gospel is everything. So in all of our theological understanding and all of our growth and knowledge and all of our study of the scriptures, the goal is to allow the gospel to sink more deeply into our hearts. So, so spiritual maturity is not moving on from the gospel to something else. Spiritual maturity is letting the gospel begin to permeate and impact more and more areas of our lives, right? So, so as we first come to know the Lord, as we first come to faith, that, that we just maybe we spend time just wrapping our minds around this awesome reality of God's free grace towards us. That we just spend time recognizing and trying to understand and come to grips with the reality that we are saved by grace through faith. And that's everything our brains can handle. But as we grow, we begin to see the gospel has given me a new identity. The gospel has given me a new heart. And I can begin to apply that, for example, in my marriage. That can affect the way that I approach my marriage. That can affect the way that I approach my work. That can affect the way that I run my business. And we start to see that the gospel is like a diamond. You turn it a hundred different directions. You see a hundred different things. And you see that it has broad implications for every area of our lives. That's spiritual maturity. That's spiritual maturity. It's us saying, where have I not allowed the gospel to fully take root? And what would it look like for me to do that. It's not moving on. What happened in Ephesus was they were, they were moving on. And Paul says that they should not teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What does that mean? Glad you asked. Myths just basically means similar to what it means today. A myth going all the way back to Plato is a false story a made-up story that is intended to deceive and perhaps in some cases intended to justify or endorse improper or unethical behavior. So myths, bad. Genealogies, it's, a, it's perhaps a bit more interesting, is, is if, if you know your Old Testament, you know that there are a number of places in the Old Testament and even a couple in the New Testament where there are genealogies, lists of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And it is admittedly easy for us today to look at these genealogies and just say, why do I care? But in ancient Judaism, these genealogies were a huge deal because you proved your bloodline, your family line by, by see, look, here I am in the genealogy. This was a big deal. This was a big deal. Or, or look, here's who here my ancestors are in the genealogy, I should say. But what was happening in Ephesus was these teachers were taking these genealogies, looking at the individuals listed in them who were real people, and then inventing these wild, fanciful stories about them that were completely untrue. And then they were presenting them as truth. It's such a bizarre thing. It kind of reminds me of when I was a kid, I really loved to write. So in the age before iPhones and iPads, my in-car entertainment was a stack of binder paper and a pen. And I would just write these stories. I'd just make up stories. And, I, I, and I've always loved sports, especially basketball. So I remember one time when I was like 11, 12, 13 years old, one summer, we got the NBA basketball encyclopedia. It was like this big. There is no better book in the world for 12-year-old Brian Kiley. And the, the book contained a listing of every player who had ever played in the league. So what I did one summer was I went through and I looked up a bunch of random players I'd never heard of from like the early 80s, real people, and I made up my own make-believe basketball team. 
And I wrote a story. This thing was dozens and dozens of pages long. I wrote a story about this made-up team coming together and playing games against other real teams. And it involved real people, but it was completely made up. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, I was kind of a weird kid. (laughs) If I'm being honest, I'm kind of a weird grown-up. So, you know, it is what it is. But that's what was going on in Ephesus. And what was going on in Ephesus would be like me taking my made-up story and saying, yeah, hey, this is, this is NBA history right here. No, it's ridiculous. No, it's ridiculous. And now listen, you might be saying, okay, got it. Don't take people from the Bible and make up stories about them. Um, thanks for that. Don't know that that was a big temptation, but I got that dialed in. I'm so glad I came to church today. But here's the bigger issue. The real problem is that their behavior was promoting speculation rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. See, destructive teaching promotes speculation. That word speculation could also be translated controversy. Destructive teaching promotes needless and excessive controversy. Listen, are there times... Are there times when we need to be willing as Christ followers to wade into controversy and speak prophetically in our culture? Yeah, we need to. We need to not shy away from controversial issues. Are there times when Christ followers need to be willing to wade into controversy even even in the church and challenge the status quo in the church speaking prophetically? Yes, there, there are times when controversy is necessary. But understand, controversy is never the goal. Being controversial is a terribly unredemptive and I would argue selfish goal. Controversy is never the goal. We're not afraid to be controversial when, it, when a situation requires it. But the goal is not controversy for controversy's sake. The goal is love. The goal is truth. The goal is justice. The goal is kindness. The goal is gentleness. The goal is these things that God loves. The goal is not controversy. Destructive teaching creates controversy for controversy's sake. Destructive teaching also focuses on winning arguments rather than winning people. Do you understand it's possible to do that? That you can win an argument logically but lose the person because you're a jerk, right? Like, I see these things online, I see different, you know, graphics and, and, and videos and things like that, that I just, I find it sort of funny, but mostly sad. Like, I'll give you an example. There was one that was popular like a year ago, and the title was something like, Christian Smacks Down Atheist in Three Minutes. Okay, I'm going to watch this thing. And I watch it, and it's this shouty guy... <laughs> Uh, has this, who has decided that his ministry to the world is going to be to make atheists feel stupid in Jesus' name. I can imagine no higher calling. And, okay, first of all, generally in stuff like this, the quality of the argument is unbelievably poor. But we'll just leave that alone for now. But as I watch this stuff, I ask myself, who is being convinced by this? Like, what non-believer or or, or just non-Christian is watching this thinking, man, that shouty guy who is totally misrepresenting what I actually believe is right. I am an idiot. Maybe he can teach me how to make shouty, angry videos in Jesus' name, too. Like, nobody's doing this, and yet this stuff gets shared and posted all around. Oh my gosh, this is awesome! Heart, cross, fire, praying hands! Like, 
what is going on? Like, what are we accomplishing? <laughs> it's convincing no one. And it's alienating lots of people. Let me ask you something. What beliefs do you hold now that you came to because somebody mocked and belittled what you previously believed and made you feel stupid? When have you ever changed your mind because someone did that? And in our culture, whether it's theology, whether it's religion, whether it's political issues, whether it's social issues, we are experts at belittling and we've lost the art of persuasion, loving, grace-filled persuasion. And listen, belittling other people is great if your goal is to win an argument. It's terrible if your goal is to be salt and, life and, salt and light in the world and win people. Salt and light in the world and win people. Destructive teaching focuses on winning arguments. Constructive teaching focuses on winning people. Be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you, First Peter says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, I want to be clear. The verse talks about endless speculations. Excuse me, speculations. Destructive teaching promotes these things. Destructive teaching seeks to know what is unknowable. But I need to be clear about what this verse is not saying. The verse is not saying don't ask questions. This verse is not saying don't ask questions. I have taught from this stage before that I believe the safest place in the world to ask absolutely any question without fear of judgment should be the church. And yes, I'm aware that the church doesn't exactly have that reputation. All right. But listen, my, my kids are small now, so their theological questions aren't, you know, I mean occasionally, but they're not really zingers, right? But I, am, I will be raising my kids to know there is no theological question that is ever off limits, ever, 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 ever. That if they hear something that doesn't make sense to them, let's talk about it. Maybe it doesn't make sense. If they have a question, let's talk about it. If they hear something from me that they want to challenge, they can do it and we can talk about it. Questions are not, there's no shame in asking questions. There's no shame in honest doubts. My own faith journey has been one of wrestling with big questions. And that is a journey that is ongoing. There's no shame in your questions. There's no shame in your doubts. What we need to understand is there's a difference between random speculation that is just meant to stir the pot for no good reason. Or random speculation that seeks to know the unknowable. Jesus is coming back on September 14th, right? There's a difference between that and between our honest questions. Between our honest questions. Constructive teaching welcomes questions. At the end of verse 4, we see perhaps the worst consequence of needless speculation. It distracts us from the stewardship that is from God, Paul says. See, What's really destructive about focusing on things that don't matter and needless speculation is bottom line. It keeps us from focusing on things that do matter. It keeps us from applying what we already know. It keeps us from living in joyful obedience. That's destructive. It's destructive. Then Paul contrasts that with what he says he's trying to do. The aim or telos, ultimate end goal, of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul says, listen, the goal of what we're trying to do is love. The goal of what we're trying to do is love. Constructive, the goal of constructive teaching is love. 
The goal of constructive teaching is love for listeners. The goal of constructive teaching is inspiring love in listeners that we might go out and be loving people, right? And, and if you've, you've been around church world for a while, you probably know that the Greek language has several different words for love. That the word for, for brotherly love or love for a hobby is different than, than, than romantic love, which is different than sacrificial love. And the word that is used here is this famous Christian word for sacrificial love, agape. Love that means I will sacrifice for you. Thomas Aquinas said that, that agape is to will the good of another. That's the kind of love that Paul says he's about. I was reading... I was reading with my son the other night, Joey, who's four, and in my house, 99% of the time, when it's time to read before bed, I'll let my kids pick the story. But every now and then, I just want to read my favorite kid's book, which is I Can Read With My Eyes Shut by Dr. Seuss. It's not too short. It's not too long. It's silly. It's sweet. It's got a great message. It is a thousand times better than The Cat in the Hat. It is his hidden classic. I love this book. Come back to that in a second. So as we read the book, we're reading, we're having a great time. Joey loves the book too. We finish it, I close it, and I say to my son, I say, Joey, I love this book and I love you. Are we clear that I did not say the same thing, even though I used the same word? I have a brotherly affection, perhaps. The love of an interest or hobby for the book. But I have self-sacrificing. My love for my son is I'm with you. Right, I'll do anything. I'll sacrifice whatever it takes for you. I agape you, son. And times a thousand, that is the love that God has for us. And constructive teaching is motivated by love. Its aim is to produce this sort of self-sacrificing love, the love that God has shown us in Christ. So then where does this kind of love come from? How can we live then with this kind of love? Where does it come from? It comes from A pure heart. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Pure heart equals character. Pure heart equals character. Love comes from a pure heart. When our hearts are ruled by agape love, when our hearts are ruled by agape love, it transforms us so that we can serve others without mixed motives. We can be people of character who are becoming like Jesus. And it's, by the way, it's amazing to me, in my own life, in church ministry, and in getting a theological education and everything else, I've met a handful of folks throughout my life who have all this theological knowledge, who know the Bible inside and out, who have memorized lots of scripture, who can quote theologians whose names I can't even pronounce. And they're about as warm and inviting as a jail cell. Like somehow in all of this theology, they've forgotten the, th- the theological conviction of agape love. They've forgotten this theology, this, this theological conviction of a pure heart. This speaks to our character. When we're filled with the agape love of God, it produces a purity of motive, a purity of heart. It comes from a good conscience, Paul says. And this speaks, the, the idea of conscience, particularly in the Greek understanding of conscience, speaks to our inner knowledge of ourself. Our inner knowledge of ourselves, And if you're taking notes, you can write down, good conscience equals obedience. A good conscience or beautiful conscience is the ability to look at ourselves in the mirror at the end of the day and say, you know, to the best of my ability and with God's help, I was obedient to who God called me to be today. I was obedient to who God called me to be today. And I presented myself honestly to others. Because let's just be honest, we can fake it. 
in front of other people. You can't fake it in the mirror. You can fool me. I can fool you. We cannot fool ourselves. You look in the mirror, you know. Good conscience says, I'm not perfect, but I know to the best of my ability, I was obedient to who God called me to be today. And I presented myself honestly. And then a sincere faith. If you're taking notes, a sincere faith equals trusting God. Equals trusting God. And that's simply the ability to more fully place our lives in God's hands. To say, God, I I trust you that your will is good and perfect. I trust you more and more with my life. So, a good question to ask, whether you're listening to teaching or you're studying the Bible yourself, a good sort of series of questions to ask is is to say, is this teaching or is what I'm reading, is it calling me to more deeply trust God in a particular way? And what might I need to do with that? Or along those lines, we can ask the question, am I being called by this teaching, by this scripture, to a measure of obedience that I previously did not have? Is there something I need to start doing or stop doing? Is there a specific action I need to take? That's conscience. Or is there something in this teaching, something in this scripture passage that might be working on my character? That there's something internal that needs to happen in me to purify my heart and purify my character. It's a pure heart. Paul says that's what we're about. Those are our motives. We can sleep at, sleep at night knowing that we're about God's business in the right ways for the right reasons. He says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Then he goes on. So that's constructive teaching. Then he goes on, verse 6. Certain persons... By swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. How have the false teachers gotten off track? Well, they're not motivated by agape love. They're not motivated by a desire to serve others. So because of that, they're not seeking to be helpful. They've wandered off into vain, pointless discussions. See, destructive teaching will take us into vain and pointless discussions that do not matter. And then beyond that, because they're not interested in serving others, because they just want the title and the power and the authority, because they just want to be known as teachers of the law, they are undeterred by their own ignorance. They don't see that as a problem. In fact, they are confidently ignorant, which is among the most dangerous kinds of ignorance. It's the kind of ignorance that leads to overcooked steaks and hopelessly lost vehicles, right? Confident, boy, you can be confident, you can be ignorant if you're both. Woo, boy, that's a problem, right? That's a problem. They don't have pure hearts. They're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. It's destructive leadership. It's destructive teaching. And that that is why, for those of us who would aspire to lead in any capacity, whether in church, business, family, social, whatever, those who would aspire to lead in any capacity or those who are currently leading in some capacity, it is so critical that we develop the discipline of paying attention to what is going on in our hearts, to paying attention to our motivation. Guard your heart above all else, Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 4, because everything you do flows from it. 
you and I must have the discipline of asking the question, if we're leading or we aspire to lead, why? If I'm being honest, why do I want to lead? Is it because I love God and because I love people and I believe with all humility that God has gifted me in such a way that I have something to offer? That my leadership will be a benefit, not to me necessarily, but it will be a benefit to other people? Is it motivated by a sincere love for God or people? Or is it motivated by something else? Because if it's motivated by something else, let me tell you two things. Number one, you're going to hurt people. You're going to hurt people. And number two, you're not going to find much satisfaction, joy, or enjoyment in your leadership. I'll give you some examples and show you why. Let's, let's say, what if you're motivated by the title? What if you're just after the title? You want to be executive director of senior management, vice president of such and such and so and so. It's a long business card. That title will feel awesome for about four seconds. And then you'll wonder what's next. Let's say you're motivated by the power, by the authority, by the, the influence. Let me ask you something. How much power is enough? How much power do you need before you can be fully satisfied with the amount of power you have? It's an unanswerable question because there's never enough. Those who are motivated by the pursuit of power never have enough power and they hurt people to get more. What if it's money? What if you're motivated by money? Same question. How much is enough? How much is enough? What if you're motivated by, by affirmation and, and attention? What if you just want people to look at you and see you and see how great you are? Here's a question for you. How many people need to tell you you're awesome before it's enough? It's another unanswerable question hurts you hurts other people but if you and i are motivated by a sincere love for god and a sincere love for other people here's what happens if we're given a title if god gives us a title (laughs) we know that that title doesn't make us better than anybody right Or if God grants us power, influence, and authority, we know that as Christ followers, that is a sacred entrustment and that our call then is to steward that power, influence, and authority in a way that benefits those who sit under it. That Christian authority is Christian service, right? That it's not about gathering for myself. It's about how can I steward this to be a blessing. Same with money. That if God would grant you money, that first of all, you would steward it properly. You would be generous with it. You would use it to be a blessing. And you would know that if you're in a position of leadership that pays your salary, you know, I get paid to do this. I don't have to go out and find another job. So when it is time for me to serve people, I better work my tail off and be ready to go. And if God grants you affirmation and approval, listen, everybody loves a compliment. There's nothing wrong with enjoying it. But you can be gracious and you can be appreciative. But you can can live with the freedom of not craving it because you know you have received 
all of the affirmation and approval you need from your heavenly Father who looks on you with love. I am telling you, if you are a leader or you want to lead, please, for your own sake, for the sake of the reputation of the gospel, for the sake of those who would sit under your leadership, pay attention to what is going on in your heart. It is absolutely critical. So, Constructive teaching, constructive leadership, constructive living comes from love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. It's focused on the gospel. It's not swerving into doctrinal creativity. It aims to serve and to love others, not gain for oneself. Destructive teaching, destructive leadership, destructive living comes from a focus on myths and pointless stories, a focus on needless questions, on confident ignorance, and a desire for more for oneself. So those are some key differences between the two. Now, in the last few verses that we're going to cover today, Paul moves from the heart of constructive and destructive teaching into some of the content of constructive and destructive teaching. Specifically, he makes some comments about the law, which if you're new to church, new to the Bible, the law is, is, is refers to the Old Testament commands, the laws that God laid down in the Old Testament of Scripture. He says in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, the law is kalos, meaning of high moral value, of high usefulness. There is usefulness for the law if one uses it lawfully. And that very statement, that very statement implies that there is a way to use the law unlawfully or to use the law unproductively. I want to give you two of those. Number one, that we need to be absolutely clear that the law does not save us. That obedience to the law does not save us. There is no amount of obedience of church attendance or religious performance that can save us. If, if our verdict in God's courtroom is changed from guilty to not guilty, it is not based on the things that we have done. It is based on Christ's righteousness on our behalf. The law cannot save you. Second, the law cannot persuade. Specifically, the law cannot persuade a wayward heart. Hearts are transformed when they see and savor Jesus Christ. Hearts are transformed when they see the radical love that God has for them, the radical lengths that God went to show them that love. Hearts are not changed by appeals to behavior. Hearts are not changed by people being told that God is angry at you and you better clean yourself up. Hearts are not changed by that. So we need to be very careful. There is very, very, very limited usefulness to trying to get people who have not had their hearts transformed by Jesus to live by Christian morality. Or Old Testament morality, for that matter. That the law does not persuade. That the love of God communicated through the cross persuades. Now, so what is the proper use for the law? What is the proper use from the law? Let's read the next couple of verses and we'll come back to that question. 
We know the law is good if it's used lawfully. Verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul says, listen, the law is not for the righteous person. The law is not for the righteous person. This is similar to what he says in Galatians chapter 3, where he basically says, listen, the whole reason the law exists is because people are broken. Right? Like, God did not look down upon creation and think, wow, everyone is behaving perfectly. These people look like they need some rules. Right? He looked down on us, saw us in our brokenness, so so as an act of gracious love, he gave us the law. He gave the Jewish people the law to show them how he had designed life to work. He says the law is for the unrighteous, for those who need to be restrained. And he proceeds to give some examples that more or less parallel most of the Ten Commandments. You can look this up later if you're interested. That, that It doesn't go through all Ten Commandments, but it's most of them, giving an example or two of sort of gross or flagrant violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Now, you may have noticed that one of the violations that Paul mentions is somewhat controversial. And you might be looking at me wondering, is he going to address it? Or is he just going to gloss over it like it's not even there? Well, I'm a wimp, so I'm going to gloss over it like it's not even there. Verse 11. No, just kidding. Paul lists men who practice homosexuality on this list. And obviously that raises some questions. Questions that deserve far more than two minutes at the end of a 45-minute teaching, right? The issues surrounding human sexuality are significant and complex. They're significant and complex. And we need to understand that this is not, that issues of human sexuality, these are not abstract theological issues. These are people issues that affect real people that God made. And we're going to talk about them as a church in much greater detail sometime in the future. I'm not going to tell you when that is because I don't know when it's going to be. But I can tell you this much, that Pastor Lance has done a ton of research on this subject. I consulted some of his research. It was really good. I consulted some of it to prepare this part of this teaching. He's got a team of folks that are going to be doing a lot of research into different perspectives and issues surrounding human sexuality. And a a day will come, don't hold your breath, it's probably a ways in the future, but a day will come where we'll be able to come together and present some of that to you in some sort of setting and just have have an honest, transparent, Bible-based, gospel-centered discussion of these issues. For now, I want to make one point about homosexuality. I want to make one point about the law in general. And then we'll close with some good news and we'll call it a day. And I don't know how your day's going so far, but at least you're not having to like sort through these really delicate issues in front of hundreds of people, so you at least have that going for you, all right? So... Um, be Kylie at bridgewaychristian.org, by the way, for any angry emails. Um, first of all, first of all, do we affirm, listen, listen carefully, please, so at least with the emails come, you can get what I said just right. Do we affirm that homosexual 
practice is not God's best for his people, for people in general. Yes. Yes. And I spent a lot of time this week, I read a lot of arguments from gay-affirming Christians who are trying to wrestle with and explain the meaning of this passage. I want to be clear to you, these are not people who are saying, oh, God's word doesn't matter, or oh, we just don't need to pay attention to this passage. They are honestly wrestling with the scripture, seeking to be obedient, and I commend them for that. I, just speaking for myself and myself alone, I don't find their arguments persuasive. I don't find their arguments persuasive, so I stand by the affirmation I just made. But here's what I know to be true. On the one hand, it is much easier... You know what? Let me start over. On the one hand, society is much more accepting and supportive of members of the LGBT community than it was even 20 years ago. I think about what it was like in high school. I think about the slurs that we used without even thinking about it. It's horrifying and embarrassing to think about. The world is a safer place for those in the LGBT community than it was 20 years ago. And despite that, I know for many in the LGBT community, they carry a tremendous amount of heartache. They carry a tremendous amount of pain. That the process of wrestling with their sexuality was painful and difficult for them, particularly for those who were bullied or for those who were raised in an environment where where they were taught that they were broken in some sort of different way or that God hated them. So my posture towards anybody in the LGBT community that is far from God is the same as my posture towards anyone, anywhere who is far from God. And that is this, that there is beyond the shadow of a doubt a God in heaven who made you, who loves you, who looks upon you with mercy, with grace, with love, and that there is absolutely room for you at the foot of the cross. Full stop. Full stop. Am I being soft on truth? No. Am I trying to say something's okay that God's word doesn't say is okay? No. But what I'm saying is this, and this is, here's my point about the law and it connects. The law is meant to be a mirror that we look into and we see our own brokenness and it awakens in us a need for God's grace. Martin Luther says, I want to read this so I get it just right. He says that the law is meant to show us our sin so that by the recognition of sin, we may be humbled, worn down, and so may long for grace. That's what the law did for Paul, by the way. Pastor Lance will show us next week where Paul laments just the reality that he is the worst of sinners. He looked into the law and saw his own brokenness. The the law is meant to show us that we all fall short. The law is supposed to awaken in us a longing for grace. But here's what we do. This is what we do. Instead of taking the law and looking into that mirror ourselves, we find people who we think are more broken than us, or we find people who are broken in different ways, and we show them that mirror and say, hey, look how broken you are, when what we should be doing is pointing them to the cross and saying, look how broken Jesus was for you.
That's our message. That's our message to an unbelieving world. It's not, look how broken you are. It's there is a God of such extravagant love and grace that he became a man and was broken for you. That there is grace for you. There is grace for you at the foot of the cross. Is there, I want to be very clear about this. Is there a time to talk about sin? Is there a time to talk about holiness? Is there a time? There is not one of us in this room who is not predisposed to sinful behavior. Is there a time to talk about what does it look like? I who have been designed in this way and I'm I'm inclined towards sin in this different way. What does it look like for me to then walk in holiness and obedience? And there's a time for that for every single one of us. But our message to the unbelieving world is there's grace. There's grace at the foot of the cross. For, for us who stand condemned by the law, there's grace. There's grace. And I love what Paul says in verse 11. He says, the law is laid down for all of this stuff because of all this, this wickedness, all this stuff that is contrary to what God calls us to. It talks about the importance of sound doctrine, verse 11, in accordance with the good, with, excuse me, with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The word gospel means good news. And that word blessed, it's like, where else do we use that word except for church? What does that word mean in Greek? I love this. It literally means happy. Got good news for you, those of you who need grace like me. God's happy. God's happy. And there's good news. For those of us who look into the law and see our own brokenness, there is a happy God who longs to give us grace because the hit we deserve for our brokenness has already been taken. Praise his name. I don't care what you walked in here today with. I don't care who you are. I mean, I care who you are, but you know what I mean. I don't don't care where you've come from. I don't care what you're dealing with. I want you to know there's grace for you. I want you to know there's grace for you. God's not angry. God's not vengeful. He's got good news for you, and he is happy. And he's happy. And he longs to fill you up with his mercy and grace. He longs to so transform your heart with his love that it purifies you, that it purifies your motives, that it purifies the decisions you make so that you can live the sort of healthy life that requires healthy motives for God's glory and your joy. Amen. Amen. Prayer team, you want to come on up? Let me close in prayer and we pray for you and we'll call it a day. Father, thank you that there is grace for us. That we who are broken, there is grace for us. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for times when we look into the, we look into the mirror of the law and perhaps we don't like what we see. So we turn around and try to shine it on others instead of allowing it to do its work in us to create a longing for grace. Forgive us, God, even amongst our Christian community on the other side of things for, for when we're in community with those we love and we cherish. Forgive us, God, for not being bold and honest enough to speak the truth in love when the time comes to talk about holiness and obedience and what it looks like to live a life that is honoring to you. Help us to be people who, like your son Jesus, were full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And thank you that there is grace for us, no matter what we've done. 
that, that as broken as we are, you were broken for us that we might be made whole. I pray for all of us in this room, whether we're people who are just wrestling with if, if we believe any of this or we're people who have walked with you for our entire lives. I pray we would walk out of this room so enamored with the beauty of the gospel, so struck by your gracious love for us, so aware of our sin and so aware of your love that is greater than our sin that we would live with pure motives. We would live with agape love for a world that so desperately needs a touch of it. God, we can't do that on our own. So Holy Spirit, transform us so it may be so. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.